The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So as you might guess, I want to offer a few reflections tonight on this beautiful and important intersection of wisdom and love, and how just to understand both, how they work together, support each other, not to see them or imagine them as being different things. In a lot of the ways we talk about our practice, you know, being open, or even the word openness, allowing, much of the language that we use really has both the flavor of wisdom and love built in. And uh, it always breaks my heart a little when I hear people talk about the practice or the Buddhist teachings as a kind of competition between wisdom and love, you know, as if, like uh, Shelley was talking the other night, maybe even last night, I forget, you know, and I think in response to somebody's comment, but about engaged Buddhism, you know, as if there's something called a disengaged Buddhism or something like that, or that there could be wisdom without love, or there could be love without wisdom. I mean, it is important, that's why I'm talking about it, to understand what is that natural capacity of our heart that we use the word love to describe or to point to? And what is that natural process, that natural capacity of wisdom, where we use that word wisdom to kind of help keep it in mind so we can share with each other, you know, talk about our minds with each other. We have these words. And they are, you know, we have two words for a reason, because they're different Mm -hmm. movements or they're different qualities of the mind or the heart. Wisdom, you know, has this capacity to let go. And love has this capacity to include. And in a way, they sound opposite. But I think that's that's why it's worthy to take some time and deconstruct and yeah, just have your own felt sense. And I guess the the most important thing, and we've been hearing this in different ways for most of you for years and years. It's, you know, the practice is less about doing and more about recognizing. So in a sense, recognizing is a doing, but it's a very particular, refined doing. So love isn't something we do, or wisdom isn't something we do, it's something we recognize. We recognize a process or a capacity, a potential, and we keep it in mind, and that's actually what strengthens the love or the wisdom. So, you know, it's a reasonable question anytime during the day, you know, is in any way is wisdom operating in the mind or in any way 
is love, active, alive, operating in my heart and mind? How, how do I know it? How can I sense it, feel it? Because we can definitely do that if we ask the question like, is aversion present? Or is delusion present? You know, we can catch the mind fixated on something stupid or silly, you know, lost in some drama, and still, in a sense, to some degree, know, boy, that's really a sticky drama. I really believe it in some way. Oh, that's delusion. That's not wisdom. So how do we recognize wisdom and how do we recognize love? And then does that in fact, um, that recognizing, does it in fact strengthen the wisdom and the love, just the recognition of it? So let's just uh, take a moment, we'll do each one, you know, is there any love active in the heart, mind right now that can be recognized? How are we recognizing? What is the sense of it, the felt sense? that quality of the heart that's not afraid to be close. Sometimes our connection with love is really through this sense of brokenness. I don't know if you people have heard this, but Sylvia Borstein would say, and it's somewhere in one of her books too, she's a wonderful teacher, one of the founding teachers of Spirit Rock in Northern California, one of our grandmother institutions in our insight meditation lineage. And I think it was her very first meditation retreat in somebody's living room. And uh, somewhere in the midst of the retreat, it might have been just a day-long retreat, I forget, she sees a sign on their living room wall and I, I'm not sure I'm remembering it entirely correctly, but it's something like, you know, there's so much suffering, only kindness makes sense. So it's, it's, that doesn't sound quite right, but it's something like that. That only kindness makes sense is there. And it's like, oh, in a world that's like this, you know, with so much suffering, so much confusion and ambiguity and uncertainty and the suffering that comes with it, only kindness makes sense. So when we look for the presence of kindness or love or metta, compassion, it's like it's somehow we sense it as the appropriate default attitude, mood, understanding. Only love, only kindness, only forgiveness, only tenderness makes sense. Like when we really cultivate that more inclusive sense, the totality of my aching body or my, you know, busy neurotic mind or 
my crazy world, my difficult relationships, my, you know, addictive tendencies. When I say yes to it all, then only kindness makes sense. That's why it seems funny when, you know, when something related to spiritual love is talked about in an exclusive way. You know, we kid about, I do at least, bumper stickers that would, would say something like, you know, God bless America, or God bless Minnesota, or God bless the Seward neighborhood, which is where the center is here in Minneapolis. You know, because it's, it's limited, you know, and it has that limited vibe. But, and that limited vibe is not love. That's something else. Love by its nature, you know, like when we're sensing its quality in our mind, heart, and body, it has that boundless quality to it, that inclusive quality to it. That's why when we're practicing metta as a formal practice, and I think we might do some in the afternoon, sit tomorrow, Thursday. When we're doing more of a formal meditation, keeping in mind loving kindness, you know, we might bring a particular relationship to mind, like we might imagining imagine ourselves cuddling with our puppy or our cat or a good friend or being held by someone who's really been there for us in our lives, we might bring a particular memory to mind where we're giving love or we're receiving love and a way, in a way to arouse the experience, the authentic experience of goodness, generous, loving quality in our heart. And then the point is, once we sense that goodness through the way we figured out how to arouse it, then we keep in mind the feeling of love, not the cat and me together loving each other, but the feeling of love that isn't about the cat and me having that moment. Because that's the point, if it's real love, it isn't actually dependent on the, the memory that we use to arouse it or to remember it. And we can feel that. That's not, it's not philosophy. It's really meant to be this felt sense where we're feeling, sensing that inclusive quality of the mind, of the heart as a living potential quality attitude. It's a natural process. And as a natural process, it wants to grow, right? When we really sense it, then we sense its generous nature, that its expansive nature. You could think of that as being the second part of getting to know this natural process of love. One is, however you arouse it or however you remember it, the way you used, the technique you used to remember it is an it. It was a skillful way to remember it, 
But then once you remember it and you're feeling the love, you realize the love you're feeling, that natural process you're in touch with, isn't about the person you brought to mind that you love or the moment from your past that you brought to mind. And then as you keep remembering, keeping in mind that attitude of love, then you'll notice very clearly it has a generous nature. It's not this sort of like, oh, I'm going to keep the treasure hidden because someone might take it. I want the gold for myself. And we tuck it away, you know, in some little corner in our heart. My gold, <laughs> my love. No, it's just, it. it's very nature is to include more and more. And that's what we sense. That's how we know it's metta or compassion. It's not afraid to keep opening. And that's how we can distinguish wisdom and love because love has that specific quality of including and expanding and saying, yes, this too, you belong, this belongs, whatever we sense, whatever we imagine, love has a way, its capacity is to include it. Not afraid to be close. Not afraid to be right in the middle. That's its nature. Just like you might have had some, we all might have had some experiences with a person who had that kind of beautiful love, spiritual love, or whatever you want to call it, metta. And they walk into a space, you know, maybe we were there. And instead of sensing how they're judging us or, you know, turning things into good and bad, we just felt from them this all-inclusive, non-judging presence. Like they weren't having any problem saying yes and keep saying yes to what's happening, what's unfolding. So just keep in mind these different flavors of that natural process of love, the arousing of it, right? We're not confused between how we connected with the love and the love itself. We see that the love, the attitude, is its own thing. And we sense its generosity, we sense its boundlessness, like it really has the capacity to include everything, to go everywhere. It's not limited. By its very nature, it's not limited. And it's not something I do. I can trust it, I can rest in it, I can abide in it. I don't actually have to do the love in any real way. So that sense of doing it, what we need to do is remember it but we don't have to do it. And that's a subtle but really important, and it's liberating, that insight. It's like, in in a Buddhist sense, it leads to a powerful kind of self-esteem. Like, I didn't know there was so much goodness. It's not mine, but it's really good, and it's really there, this capacity, potential. And of course, wisdom, you know, has a different flavor. 
you know, wisdom, one of the ways it's described in the tradition, you know, where love, we know love, metta, compassion, because when we open, it's the metta, it's the compassion that allows us to actually open and include. It is the quality of the mind or heart that allows the heart to be close. And wisdom is different. You know, it's like uh, we practice being close or seeing clearly in order, what we're keeping in mind is, like as we sense the way it is, whatever we're opening to, the breath, thought, emotion, sensation, sound. So any experience that we're opening to, we notice it's changing nature, it's ephemeral nature. We notice the way it is, any phenomena, the body, even this retreat, you know, is expressing now that we're in the middle of it, it's expressing its impermanent nature like sand through the fingers. It's, it's like we can't really grab a hold of the retreat. Wednesday is slipping away. Thursday is about to burst forth. Before Thursday's really even all here, it's already in its disintegrating afternoon stage, evening stage, and on and on like that. And when we, when, like in the process of wisdom, when we open to the underlying nature of any phenomena, we open to it in a way that evokes dispassion. That's the process of wisdom. Being close, seeing clearly, leads to a disenchantment of the prominent habits of the mind of greed and aversion. The mind becomes more and more disenchanted with its usual way of relating. And it begins to relate with dispassion, like, there's nothing here for me. I could cling, I could get attached to the evening meal or to the breakfast tomorrow or to the end of the retreat on Monday or to having a good sit. But there's enough continuity of awareness, enough of that deepening sense that nothing really lasts for long. Nothing is ultimately satisfying the heart. No experience seems to be able to really, in a lasting way, satisfy the heart. And it's also impersonal. So, The wisdom process is like when the heart is willing to be close, willing to see clearly, there's this natural process of disenchantment, dispassion, cessation. So cessation is described as a moment where taking things personally, selfing, ceases. And in those moments, the mind, wisdom, recognizes this is a mind 
without grasping. This is a mind without craving. This is a moment of mind without anything, one needing things to be different. So selfing has ceased, grasping has ceased. Oh, this is the mind without grasping. And it deepens the sense of what's possible, like this activity of mind and body without selfing. And the more there is that glimpse of cessation, the more the, what ripens in our heart is a sense of letting go. It's kind of uh, the ongoingness of non-clinging, not like a special moment of non-clinging, but almost like a continuous freefall of non-clinging. That's sort of the maturing of that insight. And you know, a lot of us, we're in that place in our practice where we have little and maybe sometimes bigger glimpses of non-clinging, but don't know the experience of that, that free fall of non-clinging, where there's the non, the moment of non-clinging isn't immediately followed up with somebody clinging to the experience of non-clinging. Well, that was, that felt good. I think I got it now, right? Because the ego does think that. It thinks, I get it. It's all about non-attachment. And I've experienced non-attachment, so I know it's possible. And the ego can become quite confident that I got this. And in a way, it has something. It has seen something. But the process, the natural process of wisdom is uncompromising. It isn't until that cessation is experienced as an ongoing letting go. And, and that it's a radical shift of how the mind is in relationship with sense experience. It's really the mind without any dependence on sense experience, without any clinging to sense experience. And I think the best way to hold that is this mind doesn't know that yet. Because <laughs> that way we'll be curious. You know, we'll really be curious, which is important. This mind might know the experience of being with the ephemeral, changing nature, the unsatisfying nature, the impersonal nature, in a way that evokes a very natural, uncontrived disenchantment. It's not like we don't know the difference between comfort and pain and pleasure and, you know, pain. We do, but it's just not as big of a deal. The underlying feeling tone, maybe I'll talk about that in the morning instructions. You know, a lot of you have practiced with feeling tone. The underlying feeling tone is still what it is, but it doesn't drive the show because there's a lot of dispassion now. Yeah, sometimes moments, experiences are really pleasant. Sometimes even intensely pleasurable and sometimes moments of experience are unpleasant yeah and that's just feeling tone but feeling tone also is ephemeral it's also in this process of forever changing and morphing into the next feeling and then to the next it's really not gonna give anybody like me lasting safety or satisfaction so we, the heart stops chasing feeling, a pleasant feeling, or getting rid of unpleasant feeling. It stops chasing it. And it instead 
starts to appreciate the non-dependence on sense experience. So moments of cessation and less, you know, like initially, even as a deluded being, there are times when our minds are really dependent, really fixed, really attached to some ideas of sense experience. And there are times when they're less, the mind is less attached. And we start to notice the difference, right? That it's like connecting the dots, these experiences of cessation and the experiences of dispassion with sense experience really start having an effect on our mind. And we really start noticing, oh, I'm really suffering because I'm attached. I'm really fixed. Thinking that some kind of sense experience is really going to make a difference. And so then the whole being, body, mind, heart, is all in to that deluded idea that this is going to matter in some lasting way. Versus other moments when there's just a lot more coolness and non-attachment and spaciousness and lightness of heart. Oh yeah, now it's nice. Oh yeah, now it's really painful, it's really hard. But there's just that natural sense that, yeah, and it's just going to keep changing. And the disenchantment and dispassion and the dropping of selfing around the pleasure and pain in life or the eight worldly winds, some of you remember that, gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, but just the movement, the natural having to navigate the different winds, vicissitudes of life, gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame, disrepute, praise and blame. Yeah, that's just how it is. And we're still navigating it. You know, it's not like we just become a bump on the log and let stuff happen. That's its own way of participating. So we're we're totally invited to participate We just don't expect meaningful happiness to arise based on the play of sense experience. We're much more interested in the happiness that arises from the non-attachment and non-dependence, leading into moments of cessation where the mind is completely not dependent, not attached, and really deepening the confidence that this is the way. That's the takeaway from moments of deeper insight. It's all okay, and that's where the heart should abide, in that experience that all sense experience is okay. doesn't mean that uh, violence or terrible oppression or other, you know, unkind, unwise acts that we put on each other, it doesn't mean that they're not what they are. There is very real suffering that arises from our unskillful acts or unkind acts. But we're realizing a heart that isn't afraid of those moments, that knows how to meet those moments, knows how to be unafraid which is certainly going to allow that heart to respond more powerfully, skillfully when those situations show up.
because we're the heart is getting established in the peace of non-attachment. So that's just a general overview of wisdom and love. Love is going to include, wisdom is going to let go. And tomorrow, the next time I give a talk, I'll just continue talking about how wisdom and love work together in our practice, both formal meditation practice, but also just in our daily lives. And in the meantime, just see for yourself how there's a beautiful blending. You know, when we have that sense, like I mentioned in the morning instructions of being love, loving and being love, so just that generous quality of love, we can see how it can support non-attachment. It's so, in a funny way, you know, satisfying. It's so trustworthy that the different ways we cling and the different ways we try to manipulate or control our experience to get what we want and get away from what we don't want, it just starts to feel unnecessary to have that controlling, judging, reactive, way of relating to sense experience. And so we still participate, still do what we need to do, but there's just that love and that non-attachment and the beautiful blending of the two. So like I said, I'll talk more about that. But this is a good time to put down the words. Just have a few seconds sitting together. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll come back at 8.30. Hope to see you all then for the evening said and chanting. Thanks again. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.